Okay, the update. Um, I spoke with Tanya Walter this afternoon. I saw her. Oh, she's over at Lourdes Hospital. You know what happened? She had a knee replacement. Um, so surgery was this morning. Um, she said that they, they got in a canoe and they paddled over to uh, they paddled over to Lourdes. Dr. Patel. Have any of you had Dr. Patel? How many of you have replaced uh, body parts? Kim, what do you have? You have a new knee. Yeah, okay, heart and hip. Patel is, um, he did, I think, Kim's hip. We've had, we've had quite a few people lately who've gotten new parts. So Kim Sales had her hip replaced. Um, Tanya had her knee replaced. Dave Sheehan, I think all of these were done by Dr. Patel. Um, but Ta- I saw her this afternoon about 5 o'clock. Um, she said she wishes she could be here. <laughs> she said to say hi to all of you um, and that she's still, um, she's at the point where she can't feel anything yet. So she's happy. <laughs> she's happy with that. Uh, but she knows that it's coming where she's, uh, she's going to start to feel things soon. They, they told her, I was kind of amazed with Dave Sheehan. They sent him home the same day. Um, but they told her they were going to keep her for a couple days at the hospital. So she's at Lord's. Um, I'm sorry, Mercy Health. You probably, it doesn't matter to you, does it, Todd? That's the competition. The Catholics, right? The dirty Catholics. Um, she's, she's there probably till the weekend, and then hopefully she'll, she'll come home. Okay, turn in your Bibles. We're going to start in Acts. I like to always start with um, where these churches began. We're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians um, but you'll find the story of, of the beginning of the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And I'll put that up for you. Acts 18. We're going to be in Acts 18. And uh, we mentioned before, if you remember where we've been, we've talked about Galatia. Paul's ministry in Galatia and the epistle to the Galatians. What do we remember about Galatians? Jacob, what do you remember? They liked to circumcise people. Okay, that's right. That's what Galatians is all about. Circumcision is kind of what's in focus, but also all of the law. How does the law apply to the Christian? If I am a Gentile and I believe in Jesus... Do I need to be circumcised or am I good to go? And uh, so that, that whole epistle is kind of revolving around that question. And the key theme of Galatians is justification. How, do, how is someone righteous before God? Is it because we followed all the right laws? Whether that's circumcision or, you know, in our time, there's not a lot of pressure to be circumcised, uh, but there's plenty of pressures. If you want God to really love you, you got to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. So that's what Galatians is all about, justification. Um, and then we looked at Thessalonians. What do we remember about 1 Thessalonians? That's Johnny Cash read us the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, remember. What do we remember about 1 Thessalonians? He, uh, they were very good, right? Galatians is fire. Galatians is fiery. And 1 Thessalonians is much more encouraging, 
right? Um, so Galatians has no thanksgiving section. Usually in Paul's epistles, there's this section, and we'll see it in 1 Corinthians. I thank God for you because, you know, whatever. Um, in Galatians, no thanksgiving. He just jumps right in. But in 1 Thessalonians, it's almost half and half. Half of the book is, I thank God for you, remember what it was like when I came to you. And uh, what we saw in 1 Thessalonians was Paul writing to a church that he had only really been physically present with for, we, th- we figured, about a month. So he didn't have a lot of time to establish them. And so he's writing back to establish, to encourage Um, to say, keep on keeping on, right? Abounding more and more. That phrase got repeated a lot. And one of the things that stood out to me anyways, um, first, or I'm sorry, Galatians, justification. First Thessalonians, much more looking at sanctification, the Christian life, growing in holiness, abounding more and more in um, what he called brotherly love, okay? Okay. Corinthians is a very different place than Thessalonians, or Corinth is different than Thessalonica. Um, What we're going to see here is that Paul was able to stay in Corinth for quite a while, at least by comparison to the month that he was in Thessalonica. So let's read it, and you're going to see how long he was there in Corinth. And then I'll kind of, I'll try to give you a a real quick history of how much time passes between when Paul is there and and when he's writing back. And that's good just so that we kind of get a sense of how much trouble can you really get into in a couple years? How wild can things get? And the answer to that is pretty wild, okay? So, uh, first, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 18, here's how it goes. After this, Paul left Athens, big, that's a big Greek city, and he went to Corinth, also a big Greek city, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, anybody know that name? Claudius? Is he in Shakespeare? Claudius? Okay. Um, He's in Hamlet? Okay. This is not uh, Shakespeare's Claudius. This is the emperor. He's the emperor of Rome at the time. Okay, so Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. I wonder why. They must have been volatile. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, so far, this is pretty standard right? Um, this is just the way, whenever Paul gets to a new place, his, he sets up shop in the synagogue. That's where he always goes, okay? When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, that's where Thessalonica is, remember, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. (laughs) Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the proconsul is, is the Roman um, representative there, kind of like, gov- like Pontius Pilate was the governor in Judea. This would be a similar, I think this would be even a little bit higher, higher up in the hierarchy, but a Roman is the point. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Okay. So we see some similarities. This is um, Paul's normal operation. You go to the synagogue, and how long does he stay in the synagogue? Until they kick him out. This is, that's, that's why his normal operation, right? Preach in the synagogues, try to persuade the, the Jews and the, what's called the God-fearers there, the Greeks who are worshiping in the synagogue. Try to persuade them that, hey, you've been waiting for the Christ? Good news. I know his name. He's come. He's died. He's risen. He's ascended. And he sent me to bring good news to you. Okay? And he always stays as long as he can. And he always gets kicked out. Right? And here you get a little more of the detail, a little more of the sense. Where does he go then after he gets kicked out of the synagogue? Right next door, you know? And so you can just imagine what that was like. And he wasn't, it wasn't like they were only there for two weeks and then they moved on. We get the sense here, they, the church was right next door to the synagogue, right? So Friday night or Saturday night, the Jews are having their services. Sunday, the Christians right next door. And they probably saw each other all the time. They probably could hear each other through the walls. You know, um, The Jews are singing their, the Psalms. And Paul says, come on, guys, louder. We can't, be, we can't let them be louder than us. right? But they're just right next door to each other. Okay? And then, after a year and a half, the Jews are, are trying to kick Paul out. They're trying to get rid of the Christians, which is standard in the book of Acts. That's always what happens. But there's something new here. What's the new thing that happens? God tells him he's going to stay. Nobody's going to harm you. And then how does God actually protect Paul and the Christians? He doesn't send angels I mean, maybe he does, but um, we're not told the angels all stood around the church. What, what ends up protecting the church? Gal- Gal- this guy, Gallio, the Romans. Okay? So the, the Jews appeal to the Romans. 
just like the Pharisees appeal to Pontius Pilate, remember, right? And Pilate went along with it. Okay, fine. He's, you know, crucify him. Fine. You want to do it? Pilate didn't really want to, but he was willing to go along with it. Here, the Romans now are saying, no, we're not going to, we're not going to get rid of these people. We're not going to kick them out. You, you, and you can't hurt them. And so look what, they, look what they end up doing. Verse 17. So they're mad. And who do they go and take out their anger on? The guy, their own guy, right? And I would imagine, you got to imagine a little bit here. I would imagine it was probably like, hey, you told us this would work and it didn't work. This is your fault, right? You're the one who told us appeal to the Romans. So they go after Sosthenes. And here's the great thing. Go to, go to 1 Corinthians. They beat him up. Yep. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look who writes the letter with Paul. (laughs) Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Used to be the ruler of the synagogue, got beat up by his fellow Jews and decided, you know what? I'm going to go join the church. (laughs) Maybe they won't beat me up if things don't work out. Okay? So not only does Sosthenes, it is a tough way to convert. Sosthenes becomes a Christian. And it also mentioned in there, the previous ruler of the synagogue had become a Christian. Right? I can't remember. Was his name Crispus? Um, Crispus. Yeah. So you get get the sense that the, the church is not just getting the people who are sort of disaffected. I mean, I'm sure Sosthenes was disaffected after they beat him up, but he was the leader of the synagogue, right? I mean, imagine if next Sunday you show up for church and Pastor Uppold says, by the way, I've decided to join the Church of Christ next door. You'd all, yeah, you'd all boo me, wouldn't you? (laughs) You'd kick me out, right? Um, But some of you might be tempted to think, well, maybe we should go check it out too. If he, we thought he was pretty smart and he went, ended up over there, maybe we should go over there too. So we don't, we don't know, you know, we don't have a record of all the people and how they came out of the synagogue into the church, but I would imagine that some of the people who came would have been people like the family of Sosthenes the, and his good friends within the synagogue. Now they're coming over into the church. Okay. Um, so we're t- we, we know that after Paul is there for one and a half years, he leaves. Okay. And I said before, um, we want to know a little bit about how long he was a, how long was it between the time he was in Corinth and could handle, th- handle whatever issues came up in person and the time when he writes his letter. And you have to do a little bit of math, and you have to read through the book of Acts here. Um, But if you go to the end of 1 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians 16. I'm not going to ask you to do math. Don't worry, Chrissy. I could see your, your heart sank when I said math. Look at chapter 16, verse 8. 
Sometimes we, we can't get a real accurate, like, we know that this epistle was written in this month, on this day, at this time. You know, Paul doesn't date his letters that way. But here you get as, as pretty accurate as you can get to the date. Look at verse 8. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay? So after he's in Corinth, we know that Paul goes back to Antioch. And then he begin, that's the end of what's called his second missionary journey. Antioch was home base for Paul. That's where he started from. He'd always start in Antioch and go out and come back. And go out a little further and come back. And go out a little further and come back. And after Antioch, he ends up in Athens for three years. That's the longest, at least as far as we know, from the book of Acts. The place he's in the longest is Ephesus. Did I say Athens? I meant to say Ephesus. I'm sorry. And it's from Ephesus that he writes 1 Corinthians. So you've got how much time has gone by? Well, at least three years plus add on a couple extra months, let's say six more months for the time that he went back to Antioch and back to Ephesus. We're looking at three and a half, maybe at the most four years later. Okay, So you've got four years where Paul has been away from the Corinthians. And how much trouble can you really get into in four years? Apparently a lot, yeah. Um, on the board here, I've put the, here's sort of the outline, and I think you have the outline of the book. I tried to just put key verses in there. There's no way we can talk about everything in 1 Corinthians, but I can at least give you the overview of here's what's covered in 1 Corinthians. The reason Paul writes to 1 Corinthians, the occasion for his letter, is he gets a report about them. And he also gets a letter from them. So two things. Somebody called Chloe, her people, bring a report to Paul. And they tell him, hey, Paul, here's what's going on in Corinth. And so he says, ooh, I got I to gotta write to them about that. And also, some, whether Chloe brought it to him or somebody else brought him a letter, the trained pigeons, I don't, they didn't have the U.S. Postal Service. I don't know how they got letters. Probably somebody carried it to Paul. But we know that later in the epistle, he says, now concerning the things that you wrote to me about. Okay, so they wrote him a letter, and 1 Corinthians is his answer. It's his reply. Here's all the things you asked me about. Okay, you get the sense? So there's a report. There's an oral report about them. Here's what's going on in Corinth. Oh, I got to fix that. I got to address that. And then there's, hey, Paul, we need your opinion. We need your advice. We need your law, your guidance on A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Okay. And here's all the things that he is going to talk about. First thing, the first four chapters 
And this is probably where we'll spend the majority of our time tonight. You can see this is the big, the big issue. You tackle it right away. Right? Don't put off the minor things. Deal with the big thing first. The big issue is you've got all kinds of factions. And we'll look at that in a minute. But you've got a divided congregation. And each group thinks we're the real group. Right? Each group thinks we're the superior ones. And each group is looking down on the others. And so Paul is going to write to correct that. Second issue, there's a guy who has, um, in a, he has, I don't think he married her, but he's living with his stepmother. So his father's wife, he's living with her as if she's his wife. And they think that's great. Aren't we progressive, right? Aren't we so wonderful? And so Paul's, Paul's going to write and say, hey, you need to do something about this. Okay? So we get a little discussion about church discipline. What does that look like? Why do we do that? Um, the third thing, apparently they were going, um, they had all kinds of court cases against each other. And instead of resolving them with wisdom from their pastors or from the leaders of the church, they were deciding, you know what, we need to go to the Corinthian courts. Right? We need to go down to the courthouse and settle this. Right? So imagine we're going to pick on Lorraine and Carolyn tonight, because that's who I looked at, Lorraine. Um, imagine Lorraine and Carolyn, you come to church on Sunday morning, you start talking to each other, and Lorraine says, oh, by the way, Phil, um, we, we can't come over after church today because Phil um, is suing Todd in court. What would you think of that, Carolyn? Ooh. <laughs> say no more, right? Please don't. But that's the kind of thing that apparently was going on. And so Paul's going to talk about that. How do you deal with issues? Seventh chapter is all about marriage, and there's a whole assortment of things going on with marriage. This is where he gets to the part where here's the things you wrote to me about. Okay, so the first, these three are the things that were reported to Paul. They didn't say, oh, by the way, Paul, we've got all kinds of schisms in our congregation. They, they were quiet about that. They just asked him about marriage and probably about these other things, too. So starting in chapter 7 is where he starts to answer their letter. Okay? Um, chapters 8 through 10, there's this whole situation where um, it's called meat sacrificed to idols. And this, for this, you have to understand a little bit of the, um, the Greek society. Okay? How many gods did the Greeks believe in? Twelve. Twelve? Millions? A lot. Yeah. There were 12 main gods. You're right about that, Sam. But there were all kinds of other little gods. The whole pantheon was full. Right? And the, um, in Corinth... If, you, if you, you can Google this at home, you can find an ancient map of the city of Corinth. You'll find all kinds of temples. A temple to Apollos, a temple to um, Athena, a temple to Zeus, a temple to all 12 of the, the Greek gods. And what was common practice was that every morning there'd be sacrifices in all of the temples. Okay? Um, but they didn't burn up all of the meat. 
And so what do you do with the leftover sacrificial meat? What do you do with it? The priests could eat it, and maybe some of the people could eat it, but there was still even more left over. So what do you do with that? You, You sell it, right? And not only do you sell it, but you mark it up, right? You sell it for big profit. After all, this isn't just regular meat. This is, this is meat that was offered to Apollos. And so the thought, the Greek thought was, well, if we eat holy meat sacrificed to Apollos, then we'll get the power of Apollos in us or the power of Athena. And so the Christians, you know, you go to Kroger and there was no Kroger, you go into the marketplace, and here's your options. Meat sacrificed to Apollos, meat sacrificed to Athena, meat sacrificed to Zeus, meat sacrificed, everything is sacrificed to everything. And so what do you do? Are we allowed to eat this stuff or not? Right? Um, So it's a very practical question. Or what do I do, Paul, when Let's pick on Phil again. Let's say Phil wins his case against um, Todd, and he wants to have a party now to celebrate. You invite your lawyer over, right, because he won you the case, and your lawyer says, what can I bring? Oh, bring, bring some meat. Oh, I've got just the thing. You're going to love it, Phil. I got this at the market yesterday. This was sacrificed to Dionysius, the god of wine. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, I want the power of Dionysius in me. That's the kind of lawyer you would hire, isn't it, Phil? Um, but so, so when your friend brings over his sacrificial meat, okay, now Lorraine has a big question, right? What do I do with this? Do I serve it or do I put it in the fridge and conveniently forget it? But so they're surrounded by this polytheistic, this pagan society and this is going to be a, um, an example case of how do, what is the Christian witness? How do our actions either serve the gospel or detract from the gospel when we're surrounded by things that we know are not the true God, right? These idols are, they're not gods. The meat sacrificed to Dionysius is no better than meat sacrificed to Apollo. And in fact, it's, it's, there's nothing special about it at all. So Paul's going to talk about that. Then in chapters 11 through 14, you get all kinds of worship, worship wars, all kinds of questions about worship. Should the women wear head coverings or not? Um, That's the first issue. What about uh, when we have the Lord's Supper? Um, This comes up in chapter 11 too, and I doubt that we'll get to it. But what was happening was that instead of having um, the church service itself and then having the potluck, it was just kind of all merged together. You had the church service and the potluck all at the same time, right? now, this, would, this is shocking to us, right, that you would bring food into church. But remember, they don't have a sanctuary. They don't have the church and the fellowship hall. They don't have the church and the gym. They just have probably one big room for all of their functions. And so you show up on Sunday morning, and you're going to make a whole day out of it. it. Church doesn't last an hour in Corinth. Church lasts all day. And who knows how many sermons you're going to get to hear. Could be a bunch, right? So um, Bill is going to think through this and say, 
you know, I better bring some food. And Kay is really going to be thoughtful and say, and some drinks. <laughs> okay? And apparently, the, the Christians were all, they, these factions would all sort of say, well, let's, let's share our food with the Kleins, but definitely not with Julie. Right? And we'll share our food. Then Julie says, fine, I'm going to eat with the Lejeans, but the Morrises aren't allowed. Right? And so you had all kinds of divisions, just like there were divisions in the church. In the worship service itself, you had a bunch of factions all doing their own thing and pretending like this was all the way that it should be. Okay, um, then you're going to get to uh, the dis- a discussion of spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. And that leads into probably the most famous chapter in 1 Corinthians. Turn to chapter 13. There's, there's two chapters in 1 Corinthians that are um, frequently read from. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and chapter 15. Chapter 13 is the love chapter. So when do we often hear this? Weddings. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. And when you hear this at a wedding, you immediately think of what kind of love? Husband and wife, right? This is talking about romance, right? Romantic love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and so on, right? Now, when you hear that at a wedding, your mind just sort of automatically puts it into the context of marriage, okay? But think of Paul writing to the Corinthians, and just the little bit that from my, my kind of cursory overview here, you've been hearing about the Corinthians. This isn't talking about romantic love, is it? This is the love that they don't have. This is the love of, that should characterize the life of the church. Okay? Love is not arrogant or rude. So how can you say, well, we're the real Christians and the rest of you are all subpar? Right? Um, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Well, that's what chapter 5 is all about. Why are you rejoicing at wrongdoing instead of rejoicing at the truth? So knowing a little bit of the context, I'm not saying it's wrong to read this at a wedding. It's good. Husbands and wives should love each other. And this is a great definition of love. But we want to see that um, chapter 13 is wider than husbands and wives, right? It includes them, but it's wider than them. It's like... uh, I'm sorry, Chrissy, but I got to do math, right? Every square is a rectangle, right? But not every rectangle is a square. So 
husbands and wives should love each other, but not everyone who loves each other are husbands and wives. Squares and rectangles. Think this, I speak in parables. Okay. All right, then um, chapter 14, you get into the discussion of tongues, speaking in tongues versus prophesying. Um, chapter 15 is the big resurrection chapter, and uh, everything kind of leads up to that. Then in chapter 16, you get the conclusion, the final, final sort of uh, tying together of things. Okay? And it's interesting, if you look at chapter 16, verse, look at 16, verse, uh, verse 13 and 14. Here's his, here's his sort of final takeaway, his summing up of things. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Which makes me think that, you know, what is the, what's the, the heart of this epistle? Which chapter is probably the, for Paul, the beating heart of the, of the whole epistle? probably the love chapter, chapter 13, right? And so at the end here, he says, hey, remember all that stuff I said about love? Read that again. <laughs> and then when you're done, read it again and read it again uh, and memorize it and read it at every wedding, <laughs> okay? Um, let all that you done, all, let all that you do be done in love. Okay, that's the outline. That's the big picture. Questions or thoughts? How much trouble can you get into in four years? A lot, yeah. You can get you can get in you can get yourself into a lot of strange situations. Where oh, back at the start of chapter sixteen, yeah, yeah. He doesn't skip that over that, right? I mean, he says now concerning the collection of the saints, um, make sure you're doing it, right? Set aside some each week and collect when when it comes, yeah. Yes. You said that during worship there were all different kinds of fashion. Did they not have one pastor, one leader, one whatever? It seems like they had uh, more than one person who was speaking. It seems like it would be more like what happens in a Bible class than what happens in worship. Now, they had, they had ordained leaders... I don't think that it was just a free-for-all, hey, does anybody have something on their heart that they'd like to share today? Um, there was a guy once, he was, he, I don't know what he, he came in and he was a little bit disheveled, kind of wild look in his eyes, you know what I mean? And he told me that he, would, he had something he'd like to share with the congregation. And I said, well, come to buy, why don't you talk to me afterwards? Um, but he, what he wanted was for me to say, sure, get in the pulpit and I, that's not how we do it here. But um, I, I don't think it was wide open like that. But it also was, um, it, the impression that I get when you read chapter 14 is that there was much more of, um, you know, Phil wants to speak. Okay, Phil, brother Phil, share the message that's on your heart. Something like that. Well, I think, I think they did, but the, it'd be like in Bible class, you know, if, um, if Jim raises his hand, I'm going to call on, I don't know what he's going to say. So I say, go ahead, Jim. 
And then he starts talking, and I have to, how am I going to interrupt him? You know? <laughs> I, I guess I don't understand why the leader, let's say you, and Jim is saying, bullish, that you know, it's Yeah, it seems like in, in chapter 14, the discussion is not about, um, I mean, it is certainly true teaching is important for Paul, but the discussion is more like, what do you do if Jim raises his hand or, or somebody wants to, um, instead of preaching in Greek that everybody can hear, somebody says, well, I know Hebrew. And so I'd like to lead us in a Hebrew prayer, speaking in tongues, right? I'm going to speak in Hebrew. And so the next guy says, well, you know what's even better than Hebrew? Aramaic. And I know Aramaic. And then Sam Uppold says, well, you know what's better than all that? Latin. And I know Latin. So it became an occasion, instead of worshiping the Lord, it became an occasion to show off. Look at how... Look at how sophisticated I am. I know Latin. Don't do that. Yes? So in a sense, this, what we're talking about here is order. Yes, order. So, so that begs the question for me, at what point do we feel like um, the order of service came in, you know, liturgy? When, when was that all invented? Well, I think we, we see that the order... Orderly worship comes right out of the Old Testament, right? It was always, the people of God have always had some kind of order, okay? So when, the, when Paul comes out of the synagogue, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Um, he doesn't say, all that stuff that we used to do, it's all bunk. Let's get rid of it all and start, start over brand new. The church inherits the Old Testament and says, we have the fulfillment of these things. And so we don't do exactly what they did in the Old Testament, but we still follow some kind of order. I'm sure that in Corinthians, there was some sort of liturgical order, but it wouldn't be everyone open to page 184 in the hymnal. Those things develop over time, and in some sense, it probably is to avoid situations like what was going on in Corinth. Um, but I don't, you know, by the middle of the uh, second and third centuries, you start to have writings that say, here's what our order looks like. But, they, but, it's, but we still don't get hymnals until uh, much later. So it's early, but I, I couldn't give you an exact date for when exactly it happened. Let's look at that first issue. We've got 15 minutes, and I think we, let's, let's definitely make sure we cover um, the factions and see how Paul addresses those things. And then if there's other, you know, matters that you want to jump to, we can do that, okay? But go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if we look at verse 9... This is the conclusion of Paul's thanksgiving. So even though he knows there's all kinds of problems there, it's, I think it's helpful to see 
Paul doesn't look at the church in Corinth and say, you are a bunch of apostates. You've screwed everything up in three years. There's nothing good happening there. It's all bad. He says, I thank God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And he's not just buttering them up or he's not being false about these things. He means it. But here's how he concludes it. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word, fellowship, is um, in some ways that's going to be what the rest of this epistle is about. What does it look like to be in fellowship with Jesus? To be part of the, um, another way you could translate that is the, what does life together with Jesus look like? Some of you have probably heard this. The Greek word there is koinonia, to have communion with Jesus. So what does the communion of Jesus looks like, look like? What does the society of Jesus looks like? Well, it doesn't look the way things are going in Corinth. And Paul writes to them to try to bring about more and more what that communion ought to look like, what it should look like. Okay? So here's what it looks like at the present time. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Does anybody know who Cephas is? Peter. That's the Aramaic word for Peter. So apparently these people were really close to Peter because they didn't just call him Peter. They called him by his nickname, Cephas, right? Um, Or some of them said, well, I'm (laughs) non-denominational. I follow Christ, right? That's the ultimate, the non-denominational group. We don't follow, we don't worship Luther or um, Calvin or any of those men. We just worship Jesus. Okay. Um, Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except your leaders, Crispus and Gaius, (laughs) so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. All right, now, there's something natural about this. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Um, Maybe we can think of it under the term of loyalty, right? Um, it, it will happen that there will be certain pastors or certain men or women in your life who were crucial at a crucial time of your life. Have any of you had that? So, uh, usually it's like, um, like I think of Phil, right? When you became a member of this congregation, who was the pastor here? It was me. So you'll always have some sense of, well, hey, when I became a Lutheran, it was Pastor Uppold who was there. Right? But that's not true for most of the rest of you. 
except for these guys, right? I'm the only pastor they've ever known. And so you always have some kind of sense of loyalty to the person, the, the man, especially the pastor, who was there when you either first came in or um, when, when mom died, this was the past. He, he was there, right? You know what I mean, right, Julie? Um, you have that sense of loyalty to the pastor who was there for you at a crucial time. Yeah. Yep. 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 And so that is not, that just happens. That's natural. And it's not wrong. It's, in fact, it's a good thing, right? It's, it's good to know who your pastor is. But here it's gone, it's gone completely wrong. And the way that it goes wrong is when it becomes a matter of pride. Well, I was baptized by Paul Donner, not by David Uppold, right? <laughs> I, I was baptized. I, was, I went through confirmation class under, you know, you see how it can happen, right? And so that, when that happens, that good loyalty has become something that's really, um, yeah, sick. It's, it's rotten, Right? That loyalty rots into pride. And um, so what Paul is writing to is to poke a big hole to let all the air out of their heads. Right? They've all got these big swollen up heads. And Paul wants to take a cross-shaped needle and just go <laughs> and get all that air out. Okay? Now why? What's, what's wrong with having a congregation where everybody's all divided? What's wrong with that? What do you think? They'll never work together. They'll never work together. Okay, that's good. So not only will people not get along, right, and so you show up and, you know, people are all avoiding each other, but what suffers is the work. And in a church, what's the work that we're supposed to all be working together on? Making disciples of all nations, right? So the mission of the gospel suffers when a congregation is all divided up. Now, just think of, um, instead of thinking of it in Corinth terms, think of what would happen if you were a visitor here and you showed up and you've got one group of people who, who comes up to you and says, hey, you know, we are, you want to come, come hang out with us and we, we have the real insight into this place. We're the ones who you want to hang around. And so you do for a little while because you don't know any better. Right? Until they kind of go away from you for a minute and then a different group of people pulls you over. What's going to happen to that visitor? This place is weird, right? I don't want to be part of this. Okay? Now, if you go into a place where people are united, where you don't have people who are trying to get a hold of you for some other purpose, which is what factions usually do. They don't actually care about you. They just want their faction to be bigger. Um, if you're united, the witness is so strong, right? The witness is so much stronger. Think of it in terms of music. Can you, can you sing without unity? You can, but nobody wants to be part of that, right? Um, when you're all singing the same thing together, this is like the difference between singing A Mighty Fortress at St. Paul's and Happy Birthday in the office. When you sing Happy Birthday at the office, Happy Birthday to you, 
happy. Nobody wants to do it. Everybody's singing all over the place. But when you sing A Mighty Fortress with your brothers and sisters in Christ, who you share Christ with, everybody wants to do that. Um, or we sang the, I know that you guys love this hymn. I think Pastor Donner told me, oh, we used to sing that all the time. Sent forth by God's blessing. We sang that at the end of service on Sunday. All of a sudden, everybody's singing, you know. And there's this manifestation of unity that is palpable. People want to be part of a united group. People are driven away from a divided group. Okay, so definitely part of this is, well, we should all get along, but also here, the reason unity is important is because the mission is important. And you can't have mission where there's all kinds of disharmony. So how does he do it? How does he poke a hole in it? Well, let's see what he says. Who wants to read here? Give me a, a chance to catch my breath here. Look at verse, um, verse 18 through 25. Who wants to read that? Go ahead, Caleb. Okay, so what's his, uh, what's his solution here to people bragging about um, being disciples of Paul or Apollos or Cephas? It, it's funny, in a way. What he's saying is, you guys are bragging about something as if this was something to brag about. <laughs> the message of the cross is what kind of a message? It's a message, it brings salvation, but it's a foolish kind of a message. So you're bragging about being disciples of foolish things, <laughs> right? Um, it, people, people like to um, try to impress you. I, we do, pastors do this. Try to impress each other with which books we're reading. What are you currently reading? Oh, I'm reading... You know, you come up with the biggest title of a book you can come up with, right? I'm reading a dissertation. It's 700 pages long. Isn't that impressive, right? Oh, well, I'm reading the New York Times bestseller from the year 1900. What, you know, you try to impress each other that way. That's essentially what they're doing. I'm, I'm a disciple of Cephas. And Paul's saying, you guys got it all wrong. We're disciples of the cross, and the message of the cross is a foolish kind of a message. Why would you brag about... It'd be like bragging that you're reading the comics, right? I read Garfield this morning. Aren't I sophisticated? Right? Garfield's great. You definitely need to be reading Garfield if you're not, okay? But that's what... He's poking this hole in their, in their argument, okay? And now he's saying the foolishness of God, 
Now, we know, what does he mean by what's the foolishness of God? He's talking about Jesus, right? It's Christ. The foolishness of God, Jesus, is wiser than all the Greek wisdom, Socrates and Aristotle and who are the other Greek, all those highfalutin Greeks, like they say in the music man, right? Um, that Jesus is, has more wisdom than all of those guys. But to the outside world, it looks like folly. And why does it look foolish to the Greeks? What, are, what do Christians worship in the eyes of, of the Greeks? You're worshiping a God who did what again? Died on a cross? Aren't you embarrassed by that? Why, why are you Christians bragging? We worship, we Greeks, we worship Dionysius, the god of wine and vitality. And Apollo, he, he drives the sun through the sky. And you guys want to talk about a guy who died on the cross? And Paul's like, yep, that's what it's all about. <laughs> See how countercultural that is? And, and what he's saying is, remember, when, if you're bragging about this, you've, you've got the completely wrong idea about Jesus. Um, it's not the wisdom of the world. It's God's wisdom, but it looks like foolishness, okay? Now, he's got a second kind of, second arrow to poke a hole in their heads. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. So not only the message is a sort of foolish message, but consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, you. Jesus was a foolish, looks foolish, and so, do his, so does his church, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, the Corinthians, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what's his other, um, what's his other arrow here? Remember who you are. <laughs> You're, you didn't, you weren't chosen by God because you are the top the upper crust of society, right? That's what he's saying to the Corinthians. Remember, none of us are all that impressive. The world isn't looking at the church and saying, wow, they're just, they're just full of the elite. And that's God's strategy. God chooses the lowly to humble the proud. And so it, it would be silly of the lowly to say, wow, we must be really impressive. That's why God chose me, because I'm so wonderful. No, God chose me because I'm so lowly, and he makes me, he elevates me, but it's, it is, it, boasting is excluded, right? We can't boast about these things. Okay, then he's going to go on, we'll skip chapter 2. Chapter 2, he says, now, we do talk about wisdom. There is some wisdom that Christians talk about. Don't get it totally twisted, um, but he talks about the kind of wisdom that it is. And if you look at uh, chapter 3, look at verse 5. Okay, so you want to you boast about whose disciples you are. Let's look at what he says. How, do, how should we think of our leaders? 
verse 5. Who wants to read verse 5 for us? Okay, Sam, read verse 5. No, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each? I planted Apollos, watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Okay, so what are the titles he gives to Apollos and to himself? Verse 5 says, We are servants. Okay, so. Who would brag that they're the disciple of a servant? <laughs> you know, that's, that's even worse than being a servant. Okay? Um, and then in verse 9, what's the other title he applies to himself? We are servants and we are co-workers. We're the co-workers of God. But you, the Christians, are the field of God. And you are God's building. Now, in the Bible, what kind of a building does God always have? What kind of a building is he interested in building? Palace. Not a palace. That's what Solomon wants to build. Say it louder, Jacob. Temple. A temple. You are God's temple. And that's what he's going to go on to talk about. Um, God doesn't build skyscrapers. He builds temples. Holy. And the temple, what's special about God's temple? That's where he lives. Right? It's his dwelling place. You are God's temple. You are God's, you are the dwelling place of God. Okay? And that actually is going to carry the discussion of what goes on next, right? If we are God's temple, then what should we do when there's all kinds of evil or corruption in the temple? Clean it out, right? And what should we do? Should we go and look for some other wisdom? When we have problems with each other, or can we figure it out ourselves? We should, some, surely there's somebody wise enough to give us, to help Phil and Todd resolve their differences. And maybe Phil and Todd just need to be told, hey, knock it off, <laughs> right? Um, but if we are the field of God, if we are God's temple, then there ought, we ought to be able to, to handle these things ourselves. Okay, um, chapter 4 uh, just repeats that a little bit, so I'm, I'm just going to stop there. Is there anything where it's 8.05, so we're, we're, I ran out the clock, I know, but is there any burning, any other burning um, um, concern on the board that you want us to look at before we end tonight? We, you, you see, we could study 1 Corinthians, we could take a week on... We could take two weeks on each of these things, couldn't we? Um, but what we're trying to do over the course of the summer is not say, hey, we know everything that's in every epistle. We just want to kind of dip our toes in the epistle and get a feel for what's going on in each of the epistles. Okay? And I hope you, you see here, too, 
yeah, we can, we can benefit from just looking at, okay, what was, what was wrong in Corinth? How does Paul address Corinth? But hopefully you can see, you know what? These are kind of enduring concerns. These are the kinds of things that happen in congregations, not just back in the year 55 in some, you know, Greek colony, but these are the kind of things that happen in the life of the church until Jesus comes back. If you can eat the meat, the rule is, the rule is, you um, let everything you do, go to, go to chapter 10. It's complicated, Roxy. Chapter 10, you have, you have to, um, being a Christian, it, you can't be a Christian on cruise control. At least not when you live in a pagan if we lived in a, in a highly Christian society, we could kind of cruise, you know? That's, that's why we are where we are, isn't it? Um, but if you live, the more pagan of a world you live in, the less cruise control. You've got to stay alert. You gotta, and you have to think through everything, even what food you eat. So here's what he says in verse 31 of chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This is what you say at the potluck um, when you want to just eat like crazy. You say, I'm going to eat as much as I can to the glory of God. Um, but what he means here is your actions should glorify God. And so what he says, the, the kind of thinking that he says you have to go through is, you know, if your friend comes over and says, this is really special meat, it was sacrificed to Apollo in the temple this morning. Let's eat it together. You should say no. Why? What is your eating going to encourage the other person to think? That he's right. Oh, well, Roxy seemed to give me the impression that this really was special. You should laugh and you should say, no, it's not real. Right? Or you should say, I'm a Christian, I don't do that. Okay? But if, you know, if you're just, you and Gary go into the, into the market and you're like, well, which meat should we buy? Dionysius meat or Apollo meat? Whichever, the, that's right, whichever one's cheaper. No, whichever one tastes better. That's the answer. Spend the money and get the good food. Um, because you know, the two of you know, that these things are they're not actually, they don't have idle power. Those things don't, those are non-existent. So I could take it home and I could fix it and give thanks to the yep. right. And, and we, we could eat it. But we couldn't invite one of those guys because that would offend Well, you could invite them over and you could say, hey, this is nothing special. Let's eat it. Your actions, you want your actions to glorify the true God and not the false God. So it's, it requires thought, and your, your concern is, oh, is not just what's easy for me, but your concern is what am I, what do my actions confess? What is the witness that my action is giving? And see, that's a lot harder, isn't it? Yeah. But it's a lot better, too. All right, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us into the fellowship of your Son to share life together with Jesus and receive from him every good and gracious gift that comes down from above. We pray that you would keep us united in your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that um, his gospel may go forward in this place, um, in our hearts, in our lives, and also in the lives of all who we encounter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week we go to 1 Corinthians, Galatians. We've done Galatians. Oh, it's easy. Next week we'll do 2 Corinthians. Oh. Yeah. This has been really bad. They got two ladders. Ready? Can I have another cookie? What's that? Can I have another cookie? Yeah, sure. <laughs>